excited to be here with all of you. Eddie Chavez Calderon here with Uri Litsetic. Um, super excited to be with a group of phenomenal leaders um, and phenomenal faith leaders in the movement here. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pin back uh, another one of our speakers here. There we go. Um, okay. Hello, everybody. We're getting ready to get set. Eddie Ch again, Eddie Chavez Calderon with Uri Litsetic. I'm so excited to make sure that this all goes thoroughly and perfectly. I'm so sorry about the tech issues. Looks like uh, a high ground of traffic was causing a little bit of tech issues as all of us are still learning how to make sure that our Zooms run thoroughly and possibly. So I'm gonna go ahead and let our speakers introduce themselves because each one of these speakers are phenomenal leaders in our community. And as faith leaders, we know that each one of our speakers here has an accredited bio that I can just make go on for all of our time, just naming all the amazing work that each one of these leaders has been doing in our community. So in the effort of times and, and for us to be able to get going on our amazing conversation for this uh, wonderful evening. I want to make sure that I leave it up to our, our speakers today to introduce themselves and let us know quickly about their work and our community. So with that being said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, let Sam introduce himself. Then we'll go with uh, Cantor Suzman and Cece and then uh, Rabbi Shmuley. Friends, good afternoon. My name is Sam Heath, and I work with Equal Justice USA, and I'm the manager of our evangelical network. We're a national group, and we're working to repeal the death penalty, and we are working to help others think about what does it look like to respond to violence and harm without centering punishment, police, and prisons. And so my work is to reach out to people of faith, especially Christians and especially evangelicals about that work. Really honored to be here and excited about the conversation. Thank you so much, friends. Uh, just as a uh, courtesy, please mute yourself um, to make sure that all of us are able to hear perfectly. Okay, can you hear me? All right. Chaplain Michael Zusman, I'm a cantor, which is uh, ordained clergy. Uh, within the Jewish tradition. And I'm the a former Jewish prison chaplain, a current multi-faith hospital chaplain, founder, a co-founder of L'Chaim, Jews Against the Death Penalty with uh, Abe Bonowitz. Uh, Abe is uh, the co-founder of Death Penalty Action. And that's how I got involved with this, with this work. And uh, through Death Penalty Action uh, and through um, the, uh, the great uh, work as well of Rabbi Shmuley, uh, we've uh, tried to mobilize the Jewish world into action. And so L'Chaim uh, seeks to do that as well. We're in touch with um, everyone who's in line for execution and uh, as well as all individuals who identify as Jewish on death rows throughout the country. And we uh, advocate uh, and try to activate as many people as we can. Thank you. And I'm honored to be here with this group. Thank you. We'll go with Reverend Cece and then Reverend Stacy. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Reverend C.C. Jones Davis. Um, I am the campaign director for Justice for Julius. Many of you will be familiar with Julius Jones. He was His sentence from death row was commuted in Oklahoma a year ago. Um, this month is the anniversary of that commutation. And um, we continue to seek justice for Julius because he's an innocent person now incarcerated who remains incarcerated. Um, and so we continue the fight, but I am um, here because all of that work 
brought me into a lot a larger conversation around the death penalty and principles of faith. Uh, and so I'm very, very glad to be with you. Thank you for having me. I'll jump in. Um, Reverend Stacy Rector um, from Tennessee. Um, I'm ordained Presbyterian minister um, and uh, did my seminary training in Georgia, which was an actively executing state. Um, and when I, I'm a native of Tennessee, and when we returned to Tennessee, Tennessee was just on the cusp of resuming executions. And um, I became very convicted about this issue and got very involved um, and have now been the director of Tennesseans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty for the past 16 years here in Tennessee. So I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Uh -oh. Hi, friends. Uh, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz here from Uri Litzedek. We have um, uh, we are the first and still only Orthodox social justice uh, movement in the Jewish community, um, but we operate in a pluralistic manner, certainly within many denominations in Judaism and in the interfaith context. Our main work um, circles around immigrant rights work, welcoming the stranger, um, and various intersections there. Um, along economic justice and racial justice work. And in our criminal justice work, this is our number one issue that we're exploring today and thrilled to be with great colleagues and participants today to, to discuss. Thank you all. As y'all can see, these are uh, just great leaders all over uh, doing such great work. Um, I, I think it's amazing that we can step into uh, a pluralistic setting and see how faith really guides us to advocate. With that being said, our first question, and for everybody who's watching in our audience, we're going to start off with the first questions of, for our panel. And then closer to the end, we're going to leave a little bit of time for folks who are watching both on our Facebook and who are uh, here on Zoom present. We'll be able to type in their questions on the chat and or unmute themselves for any of our speakers here today. Our first question is, how does your faith ground your activism towards the death penalty? And with that being said, we can either whoever feels called upon to jump in uh, can go ahead, or we can maintain the same structure as our opening, um, uh, our, our, our opening for the event. The question again is, how does your faith ground your activism towards the death penalty? Okay, well, I'm happy to jump in. I think as a, a, as a person who's been a Christian a long time, I have um, theoretically been anti-death penalty for a long time based upon my reading of scripture. But I think my passion and the activation in me really happened when I understood at face value, you know, how the death penalty impacts people, that these folks are not just numbers, not just, um, you know, statistics, that they are actual humans and they have stories. And then most of all, that they have families and understanding how we, um, our system is so merciless that we would um, have people on death row um, and not understanding that those people are not the only people on death row, that we put their entire families on death row um, when they go to death row. And so a story had to bring me into activism. So this was something that I, you know, theologically would have said, you know, I'm opposed to the death penalty, but someone's story 
really lit the passion in me to to help as many people as I could see that this is a very, very wrong practice and that we we need to we need to stop it. I'll echo CC in that proximity is what catapulted me into the justice movement as a whole, but especially the death penalty movement. A friend of mine, one of my best friends was incarcerated for 13 years and we were friends before, during his incarceration and after his release. And he was my view into this is what the system can and cannot do. And initially I would say it was being an evangelical and some of that theology that led me to support the death penalty. And then through proximity to my friend and seeing the system and what it was and what it was not capable of doing led me to re-examine that theology. And, and now I'm privileged to be able to say, I think to be truly evangelical, to truly love the way of Christ compels someone to pursue life by repealing the death penalty. And so it was theology that brought me in and it's theology that brought me out as mediated by a friend of mine. That proximity was key. Thank you. Thank you so much. So two quick thoughts um, from me, One, uh, both emerging from halakha, from Jewish law, the first of which is famous in the Talmud. It's the go-to passage here where the rabbis taught that a court that often puts others to death is deeply problematic. How often is the debate? According to Rabbi Eliezer Ben-Azariah, he says every 70 years. Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Kiva say, if we were in a court, no person would ever be executed. This is in the Talmud, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago. And so while these rabbis of our tradition, of the Jewish tradition, were not categorically opposed to capital punishment, certainly, the rabbis saw the death penalty as so extreme a measure that they all but removed it from our justice system. And so regarding capital punishment, the sages had a very high bar for reliable evidence and were eager to find ways to acquit and were deeply concerned about the dignity of those that were indeed condemned. Uh, in contrast, our American system today lacks those highest safeguards to protect the lives of the innocent and uses capital punishment all too readily. So that's my first thought, is the sage's kind of reinterpretation of, of the Torah itself, which allowed for it, um, it by requiring levels of evidence, certain levels of evidence. The second is a notion in Jewish law that everyone is capable of teshuva, of repentance. Everyone is capable of change and transformation. And no one is uh, ultimately be discarded. Even further, that it is a sin, it's an avera, to place a barrier in front of another person from engaging in their transformation. We have to make it possible for everyone to engage in such a transformation process. I can jump in. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll echo a lot of what's been said. Um, I think my uh, entree into this was theological as um, someone who was wrestling with my faith and what I saw going on in the world and then landing in an executing state and sort of having that experience since Tennessee had not been doing it at that time. Um, and really being struck by the fact that uh, as a Christian, you know, every Sunday go to church and, and talk about God's mercy that is without end and how we have all fallen short and that we are loved and forgiven people. And then yet so many Christians support the death penalty um, and trying to wrestle with all that. Um, and, and as a follower of Jesus, what does that look like um, 
as someone who was executed by the state himself, you know, how, how does all that fit together? Um, coming into it theologically, also having proximity as has been mentioned when I began to visit someone um, on Tennessee's death row and became his spiritual advisor and the stories of people who have lost loved ones to murder and the horror that they go through in this current system. Um, so the, the theology, the proximity, and then the policy itself, as it has been mentioned, which is utterly broken um, in so many ways that we can talk about that is not just, that is not healing, um, you know, uh, that actually uh, causes more trauma to everyone it touches. And so for all these reasons, I've, you know, jumped in and been at this for a while. Thank you. Uh, with the last name Z, it's I feel accustomed to going last usually, so this is my usual place here. But um, uh, I actually grew up uh, being a proponent of the death penalty, and it was uh, both my faith and my cultural identification with Judaism that uh, boomeranged me. The same way it brought me, uh, it brought me there. It took me away from it. Uh, so uh, growing up, um, like many American Jews, uh, I have a connection to the Holocaust, and my grandmother was a survivor, and lost many family members there. And so for me, it was clear cut, you know, very clear. Anybody who would have done that to my family members deserved to die, like anybody, like others who were in a certain category that belonged, belonged in that category. Uh, then I became a, a Jewish prison chaplain, and I met people who would have fallen in that category in my mind growing up, including uh, to echo uh, what um, what Sam said, a friend of mine, a, a nice Jewish boy, as it were, from from what I went to college with and um, uh, following him through the New York prison system and eventually at Sing Sing, which was the one of the death chambers in the state and uh, then uh, seeing people who could change and causing me to explore these issues more in, in, intently. My own, uh, in, uh, my own practice, my own uh, entree into Judaism is one that sees it as an evolving tradition in its interpretation of, of scripture uh, as, as, as halakha, as Jewish law. And I know that there are different ways of approaching that and I respect them all. But for me, um, it's that evolving tradition, which includes the quotation that was uh, very beautifully recited by my esteemed colleague um, from the Talmud, that that says uh, that 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 says that the way we carry this out today would not be admissible, as the Pope said, not admissible uh, in, in the current system. So there's the religious component there, but the cultural component also is there. And for me, um, learning more about the origins of lethal injection, as first initiated by the Nazis practiced in our world by the Nazis as part of Achtung T4 protocol used to kill people deemed unworthy of life, which was devised by Dr. Carl Brandt, personal physician of Adolf Hitler. And then Zyklon B, which we know, speaking of Arizona, is used in that state now as an option to put people to death. Um, these things just blew my mind, blew my mind. And so uh, I felt a mission to uh, to try to do my part to um, engage the Jewish community. And then doing that work, I found other, other, um, other people who I admired so greatly from the same tradition that I came from, like Ellie Wiesel, who was a hardcore death penalty abolitionist and said, death is not the answer. And I'll just add one quote here, and then I'll 
be quiet for a moment. But he famously said, with every cell of my being and with every fiber of my memory, I oppose the death penalty in all forms. I do not believe any civilized society should be at the service of death. I don't think it's human to become an agent of the angel of death. Neither Elie Wiesel nor myself nor anyone can or should ever say that this is the equivalent of what happened in Europe. It is not. Chas uh, v'shalom. It is different. However, lessons must be learned from the past. And the lesson of state-sponsored murder uh, must be uh, understood as I evaluate my own religious and cultural identity as a, as a Jew in the 21st century. Every single one of you gave me chills. And I, I'm just feeling what everybody is saying. And I'm feeling really proud of ourselves because... Uh, as as y'all can probably imagine, we're on time here with <laughs> all of our faith leaders here, and everybody is just hitting points that are just resonating with me so much. And truly, as each and every one of us here on this panel are faith leaders, we, we really have a grounding in our scripture. So that's my next question. What scripture do you pull from to advocate against the death penalty? I think of three. And, and, and I'll say them briefly. I mean, one is I think of Genesis one twenty seven. I mean, the, the foundation, and this is one area where multiple faiths can intersect, that we are made in God's image. And so I believe that life should be allowed to have its natural end and that we as humans should not do something to interrupt that. I think that regardless of someone's status before God, they have and continue to bear his image. That means they are beloved as part of his creation and something to preserve and that certain things should happen for and other things should not happen. And one of those things that should not happen is a life interrupted. Two others I think of, I think about Psalm 10 and I think about a calling for us to break the arm of the wicked. And I think that that is an active thing that we are called to do. We're called to not be passive in the face of wickedness, but to actively move to arrest and to stop that. And the death penalty is a great example of this. It's something that if we all opposed but did not do anything actively against, it would continue. And it is currently continuing in that way and being done in our name. It requires an active cessation of evil for us to be able to do it. If we're not actively opposing it, it will continue. And the last one is in thinking about Psalm 89, Justice is a foundation of God's throne. And here are some of the most troubled and exciting conversations I have, especially with evangelicals. I speak about justice as not being synonymous with punishment, but justice being things like safety and healing and accountability. And to call evangelicals out of an affinity or an obsession with punishment is often something new. But for Christians, post-Jesus, we see as was talked about earlier, Jesus himself was executed. Jesus himself interrupted an execution and calls us to engage those who are in prison. That's what justice looks like. It looks like proximity. It looks like breaking the arm of the wicked. And it's something near and dear to God's throne and to his heart. Yeah, I'm happy to piggyback um, off of what Sam has said. You know, when the, the scriptures that I really go to are found in the Gospels, you know, specifically John 8, where um, Jesus is interrupting, as Sam talked about, um, the execution of the adulterous woman. And he says to the crowd, you know, ye who have no sin, cast the first stone. I think about Matthew 5, where um, Jesus says, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, etc." And so, you know, when we think about the heart and the nature of God, um, uh, exemplified through the life of Christ, 
I, uh, through these examples and others, I cannot see Jesus um, saying that it's all right to kill anybody. I just, I just can't see that in his life. I can't see that in his nature. I can't see that in his words. I can't see it in his heart. And so um, those are, I really do turn to the gospels and the ways in which Jesus lived and the things that Jesus did and the things that he said. And I'll piggyback on that, <laughs> Reverend Cece, um, because one of the texts, the text about Jesus um, interrupting the execution has been really important to me. And the question he asked, you know, you who are without sin or or the what he, he says to them, you who are without sin, cast the first stone, um, has been really, really important to me because what I often hear when I have conversations with people, particularly around heinous, heinous crimes is, well, don't you think they deserve it? Don't you think they deserve it for what they did, right? And and I think what's so helpful to me in that particular story, and obviously throughout scripture, things get reframed. But in this particular instance, what Jesus does is he reframes the question. It's not, um, does this woman deserve death? Does she? Does this woman deserve punishment? The question is, do those holding the stones deserve to kill her? Um, and it becomes not about her anymore, but about us. It's not who she is, but who we are and how we choose to live and how we choose to act. And for me, that really can be helpful, particularly when, you know, rightly people are so hurt and outraged when there's violent crime and people are afraid and people are, you know, can get very fixated on what are we going to do to this person who did this terrible thing, as opposed to stepping back and saying, who am I? in light of my faith, in light of what I believe about who God is and about who I am, how do I respond, right? And that has been very helpful to me as I've continued to be on this journey. So in line with the, um, what would Jesus do? The the Jewish version of that is halakta bedrachav, which means imitatio dei or... um, you know, uh, emulating the divine. And it also resonates for me very deeply in the way I relate I relate to God as a being of mercy. As Rashi says on the very first verse of the Torah, bara Elohim God created the heaven and the earth. And it uses a name of God there, Elohim, not Adonai. It uses a name that that's a strikes of mercy rather than one of strict of uh, uh, strict justice uh, in 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 a punitive justice sense, just justice sense, and uh, to teach us that this world cannot be sustained on that. This world could only be sustained on mercy and compassion. Ultimately, uh, we would destroy all of us um, in our social media wars, in our in our political polarizations, in our religious warfares, um, in our inability to to judge less um, uh, less harshly. And, um, and, you know, pikuach nefesh, the, the mitzvah, the imperative to save life, to intervene and save life, um, whether, whether we love that life or don't love that life. It says in Proverbs 24, 11, you must rescue those taken off to death. And so um, I know this is a very loaded, very loaded issue for people. Um, and I want to just kind of, you know, be sensitive to, you know, the emotions that are involved. In criminal justice systems, and um, and I don't think any of this is talking about necessarily, you know, being soft on crime, you know, as many say, 
um, that there is accountability. Um, and I'm sure everyone agrees. But with that accountability comes building a country that is godly, building a society that is uh, has a different paradigm that is more fair and equitable, restorative, restorative justice that is able to uh, is see the divinity in all people. I wanted to make sure to let uh, Rob Shmuley go first, because one of those verses um, uh, was one that I learned from him, and that was uh, the one uh, from Proverbs, uh, and I wanted him to say it rather than me, but uh, you shall rescue those taken off to death. I thought I knew all the verses, but then but then I encountered that one. So thanks to you, Bichvod, uh, that is among the verses that I use. Uh, amongst others, um, there's Ecclesiastes, Ein Adam Shalit Baruach. No one has authority over the life breath. There is no authority over the day of death. And here I was thinking about all these verses because I got this question a few hours ago from, from Eddie. And then I went to do our, our daily afternoon service, the Mincha service in, in the Jewish tradition. I went to, to, to say the prayers and, you know, do prayers that I do every day, right? And, and I came upon this one that um, I say every day in Tachanun, which is uh, where you, we bow the head and we, we ask for, for forgiveness and mercy. And the beginning of this prayer is a scripture that applies directly to this, and I'll just share it. Vayomer David al Gad Tsarli Me'od Nipala Na Vayad Hashem, Kirabim Rachamav Vyad Adam al Epola. And David said to Gad, I am exceedingly, exceedingly distressed. Let us fall into Hashem's, into the divine hands, for God's mercies are abundant, but let me not fall into human hands. This is from King David after he knew he had sent to, 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 the de the, to death the, the uh, husband of Bathsheba. So it reminds me that scripture of the frailty and the imperfection of human hands. And, um, and finally, the other scripture for me, is and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What we do to others, ultimately, in my mind, we are doing to ourselves as a society, as a collective humanity. And so we cannot continue killing ourselves. Eddie, you paused a beat, so I'm going to jump in because I wanted to say this because this is one prophet that I know all on this panel can look towards, but the prophet of Micah. And if we look at Micah 6, 8, and it's asking, what is it that the Lord requires of you? And that God requires of us to do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly, right? And those give us these postures that we should have. Justice is something active that we do. There are things that we should love and there are ways that we should walk. And all of this is formative for us and how we approach life and love of other people and how we think of what justice is. And I think all of us absolutely believe in accountability. When, when the scales of justice are imbalanced, I think that we want to get those balanced back. I think when harm happens, that imbalance occurs. I don't think it's punishment, though, that does that. And I certainly don't think it's execution that does that. I think accountability is a layered thing. And sometimes it's synonymous with justice and with punishment. And I, I don't think it is. But I think if we actually want to hold someone accountable, we can call them to acknowledge what they've done, empathy. Then we can call them to repair some kind of act that they do with violence being off the table. And then we call them to change. 
And ideally, I also think we should call our system to change so that that harm can't happen again. Those are things, as I've continued to go through scripture and see what is justice, what is mercy, what is humility, I see it breeding those things rather than this thirst for revenge. So beautifully said. Thank you so much for that, Sam. And that really leads perfectly into our next question. And this question is often a question that gets asked a lot within uh, the death penalty advocacy sphere. That question is, what do you say to folks who use justice as a means to justify the death penalty? Folks who say, well, taking a life is justice, and that's exactly what we need. What do you say to those folks? Well, I'll go first this time instead of last. Um, uh, I would first and foremost use the term that has been stated here already, which is um, restorative justice. And if it's restorative justice, is that the model we're talking about? Then yes, that should be used as the model um, to, to justify what we do in our criminal justice or corrections department or, or, or forms of rehabilitation. Restorative justice models cannot include the death penalty. There's nothing restorative about the death penalty. The scales do not even, there is not balance. All that's created is more victims and more torture, uh, as we see from our communications regularly with people who have the, the date of execution in line for them. And then of course, another spiritual leader um, who comes to mind is Gandhi, who famously said an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So those two statements would be my first responses to somebody who invokes justice. You know, I would say that, you know, my biblical understanding of justice, along with what others have already said, is just this idea of making things right, you know, making things right. And revenge does not make things right and hate does not make things right, and death does not make things right. And, you know, I'm just reminded of something that we say a lot in the Christian tradition, that God has not treated us as our sins have deserved. And so what if what if God looked upon us with the same eye of justice that many of us look at our neighbors with? Where would we be? Where would we be? Would, where, would there be would we be here? Would we exist if God had treated us as our sins deserved? What, what would that mean for us? And so this, if God has not treated us as our sins deserve, then I think this whole notion around justice that I think so many Christians have touted for too long, it has to be very, very much re-examined, right? And um, we need to do something about the ways in which we think about mercy and grace and justice and not just use those terms when they are convenient for us, not just use those terms when they work for us, but use those terms because they set a standard even when we fall below a standard. We have to set in society a standard, something by which we are trying to attain trying to strive for, trying to reach for. And um, those standards should be higher than our anger. Those, those standards should be higher than our malice. Those standards have to be higher than the anger that we feel when, when something, 
when something bad happens. Thank you. All these points deeply resonate for me with me. And um, I think the first thing I would say is that I don't actually on on a um, on an intellectual level, on an intuitive level, on a psychological level, believe their argument to fundamentally be absurd. I, I, I understand why someone would make the case for death penalty. And I think a lot of political ar arguments are completely absurd. I think this one, while I think is morally wrong, I don't think it's morally absurd. And, um, and I would just kind of want to you know, speak on those terms with that person, as I often do, because I understand, given the history of humanity, the history of tribalism, the history of warfare, why we've evolved to think the way we do that we're always at threat and we got to double down, lock down with our tribes. And anyone who even uh, poses a threat to us needs to be struck down. And so I think we have to kind of understand how that history even got into our minds and psyches and souls. And so I think for someone who was really convinced that this is justice, I think rather than um, trying to convince them that someone clearly who had done something extremely heinous should not be given the death penalty, although I think I could give, give arguments there, is to raise some doubt with them about the number of people and how high the percentages are of those wrongly convicted. Um, and once we see that the wrong that that um, the wrong person is convicted for crimes they did not commit all too often, and that due to their socioeconomic stat status or their lack of access to legal resources, that wrongly convicted people often have no real opportunity at all to respond to an overwhelmingly an overwhelming legal system that after an initial conviction makes the proof of innocence very, very difficult. And so the consequences of this system are not only fundamentally unjust, but also produce racially uh, uh, disparate outcomes. And so I would want them to say, like, uh, to ultimately agree, as I think many will, that um, what would be worse than not putting to death someone who did something atrocious would be putting someone to death who was completely innocent. And if they can then doubt that the system itself is capable of that, then I think they have to um, ultimately agree to pause. Because ki killing 99% who, who actually did, or let's say 95%, 95% who actually did what was claimed they did and 5% who actually did not, um, uh, it is hard for anyone committed to justice to abide by support such a system. I'll jump. I'll jump in. I have a feeling Sam may piggyback on something I'm about to say. I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but this is all like super helpful, and I, I think I'm I'm with everybody on kind of the different ways you can talk about this. One of the things um, we're trying to do in Tennessee, and I'm really committed to, is is working more around the needs of victims of of violent crime and trauma and surviving families, and. Um, I think that there is a real sense of isolation and being marginalized for those families in this process and that they often feel and are actually told that this is what they need, um, that this honors the life of their loved one, that this is what they need to heal. Um, and sadly, our politics, our, the criminal legal system itself, and, and some of our theologies <laughs> back that up. Um, and so what we see are very, very hurt people who cannot get out of that trauma for decades and decades and decades. Um, 
And I, I feel like if we were to do more to focus our energies, our resources on them um, and on people living with trauma before some of those are the very people that come into the criminal legal system, right? How are we dealing with all of this trauma in ways that are healing um, and not actually trapping people in it and keeping them there for our political ends, if you will. Um, and so you see families trapped in these uh, death penalty litigation situations for 30 years um, and the trauma that that inflicts. And I think as people learn about that and as families understand um, that maybe there's some other options and ways um, for them to absolutely have accountability, but also be able to heal in, in whatever ways possible. I feel like we can do a much better job in that realm than we are currently doing. Yeah, I'm thankful that Stacy's brought up trauma. That is that is a key thing and a key lens because it's not it's everyone who is touched by the system that is experiencing trauma. It's those who are within it, those who are the staff within it, it's those who come out of it. It's everybody. And I think about scripture, which is both both the Torah and both the New Testament. These are the most trauma-informed books that are out there. It's a modern term, but an ancient concept. And so to recognize that is key, or else we just perpetuate that trauma. I really like Shane Claiborne's riff off of Gandhi's quote of, if eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, what we, what we would hold to, then it leaves the whole word blind and endangers, right? If we pursue this all the way to its end, we are all guilty. We are all guilty. So rather than condemning all of us, we see this way of healing that has been made. A lot of my conversations go, go down two tracks. I mean, one track, and Rabbi Shmuley alluded to this, is that logical one, right? We know that the death penalty doesn't deter crime. We know that it's done in a racist way. We know that it's done in a discriminatory way. We know that it's done in a torturous way. We know it's all of those. It's not done cheaply. All of those things, all of those objective arguments. But there's one piece that I can't quite argue against unless we're talking about a posture towards something. If someone just wants the death penalty to punish someone, it does that every time. Now, sometimes we're punishing innocent people, but but it, it, it's still punishing someone either for things that they've done or for what someone else has done. And so then we have to ask ourselves, what role do we think punishment should have within our society? And I can't conscience, one, that happening to the innocent, as Rabbi Shmuley's brought up, but I also can't conscience post-resurrection of Jesus doing that and living in a world where that's what we're called to. I don't think that we are called to punishment for lots of reasons. I don't think it actually works for what we want. I don't think it actually contains evil in the way that we want. I don't think it works in a society. I don't think it works in a household. And I don't see that that's what we're called to do. So not only does it not work in an ineffective way, I can't stomach that theologically either. Thank you so much, friends. And um, for this last question, and then we're going to be opening it up to questions, as I already see some are, are coming in through the chat. So I appreciate everybody who's who's uh, taking a step forward and, and making sure that their questions are sent on the chat. But to finish off, my friends, we understand that the way our system works right now is that systems of oppression are cyclical, that what one thing affects uh, one issue, it affects the other issue. So uh, what death penalty uh, issue do you feel like in, in, intersects with other systems of oppression within a non-criminal justice area that we can bring in to, to also focus in on the conversation? 
Wow, uh, that's uh, please, Reverend Cici, uh, you, you go first. Oh, thank you so much, Rabbi. You know, systemic racism. You know, I think that systemic racism we most of us can see. You know, is something that is an issue across the board, no matter kind of what system we are uh, addressing in the U.S. So when we consider the death penalty and we consider how African-American males in particular uh, receive death sentences disproportionately to white men who commit similar or the same crimes, when we really understand that, that science right behind um, how the death penalty is kind of distributed, across the country, we understand why there are certain states who understand that and are kind of are pulling um, their death penalty policies. So I think that this is, we're living in a time where, you know, it is, it's time to really look at the systemic racism as an issue within the death penalty um, and systemic racism within every system that is in operation in the United States. Love that. Want to second that and completely agree with the systemic racism and 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 that how that's involved here. Um, the 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 additional or separate contribution I want to make here is that um, I believe our factory farming industry is modeled off of our mass incarceration system, and where we are killing tens of billions of animals um, every year for food. That if this is an ethic of nonviolence, we think um, we should stop killing. I think we have to stop killing animals and stop eating animals. And that has to be a social justice commitment as well. Uh, if, if I may jump in as well, I, I want to add in, in terms of these, the, the issue of what uh, is a cross section. Uh, capitalism has many values, but it is not perfect. And in my opinion, um, the ability to put people to death um, is a great danger when you give it to a system that is not perfect. A famous phrase, and I'm forgetting who said it, is that um, capital punishment is for those without the capital who get the punishment. And so we see that the holes in that system consistently and constantly. I know that you said, uh, Eddie, that this was the last question, and I just wanted to make say one other thing as well in that case which is what it reflects and why this issue is important you know some people think well when i reach out to people and say but what do you think about this issue the death penalty so oftentimes the response is well who cares you know i have all these other things i have to deal with on a daily basis and of course we do i mean this is not the only issue out there so why does it matter and, and i think that this relates to your question so you know and for me capital punishment reveals infinitely more about our society that enacts it than the human beings that it condemns. And I say this because I feel it condemns us all. It's not about them, it's about all of us. And I wanna just quote um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King when he articulated that capital punishment, quote, is society's final assertion that it will not forgive. And when it comes to state murder, there is no marker that's more vile of our society's outright rejection of the possibility of redemption in any worldly form. It is a slap in the face of any spiritual, legal, or ethical tradition that is of any value to humanity. Of course, I'm biased. Those are my thoughts um, that I wanted to add. Thank you. And I'll, I'll just add, I mean, all this is really helpful. Um, 
I've recently had some conversations with victims advocates here in Tennessee, and we were discussing, you know, how complicated this all is. Um, and, and one of them said, you know, if we would really figure out how to address domestic violence and sexual abuse for children, you know, I mean, and obviously domestic violence is a family situation. The, the amount, the, the, the level of trauma walking around out there that's ultimately going to lead to some really terrible situations would really go down, you know, and, and I do think our children and what many, many children living in poverty, living with trauma, living without proper nutrition. Um, I mean, you just can name, you know, uh, in Tennessee, we have a situation where our Department of Children's Services is so under-resourced, children are sleeping in offices and foster children are sleeping in people's offices and stuff. I mean, it's it's horrific. And we're spending millions of dollars and all this energy on a distraction, a horrible distraction, but a distraction, which is the death penalty. When we have our kids in every single one of our states suffering, and what are we doing? Because we know what's going to happen nine times out of 10 with a child that is living in that kind of a situation, right? And so I think helping us reframe and think about this in a different way to get to people before we're talking about how we're going to punish them, as Sam said, we've got to do that. I'd, I'd give two responses. And Stacy, you said one of them. One is punishment. I feel like that, that's been my theme today. Under all of this is our view of punishment and what we think it can and can't do. But with what Rabbi Shmuley said, you inspired me to mention something that was, you know, a little more, a little more uplifting. Uh, our youngest daughter, our three-year-old, we named Wendell after Wendell Berry, the Kentuckian farmer and essayist. And I've always had this fascination, credited to Wendell, of thinking about the land, what happens on it, what happens because of how we engage it. So, so in a sense, we can thread together a Reverend Cece talking about white supremacy, Rabbi Shmuley, you talking about the land and what we do on it, and Chaplain Zeusman talking about and thinking about how is it that we engage capitalism? And Wendell Berry will talk about the way that we engage our land is in a consuming way. And that's a product of the Industrial Revolution. And that is a model that we take towards everything, this industrial consuming model. We take it towards education. I have a background of teaching for 10 years, and it is riddled with that industrial model. We take that model as well for when harm happens. What do we do? We take the factory model. I'm not sure, Rabbi Shmuley, if I can give up my burgers, but I can talk about, like, let's get those kathos smaller and let's engage this land in a way and act as stewards rather than people leeching and taking from that. So perfectly said, my friends, thank you so much. So now I want to move to the portion of, of questions for our panel. I'm going to go ahead and start, and excuse me, because I want to scroll all the way from the top of the chat just to make sure. Um, uh, Ann Smith shared about how uh, after five years of incarceration with 20 plus more to go, uh, their precious and uh, decent son who deserves and needs a second chance, nothing has changed in this disastrous system. How will it change? I'll just uh, jump in and, and say, in my opinion, uh, first of all, and I, I hope and pray that it will change in time for your son. I believe that it has to change from the ground up by exactly what we're doing now, exactly this. We cannot trust the politicians. 
I, I wish I could say otherwise. Um, I, you know, the way things stand, I mean, they're they're responding to the, the will of the people, and it has to come from the ground up, and it has to come from places that we sources that we go to for moral and ethical leadership, like faith leaders. And so these conversations need to be happening more and more, and that's how I believe it will change. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go ahead in the effort of being able to answer as many questions, going to go ahead and move on to the next question. Um, the next question is, um, in, in response to a previous conversation we were having earlier, uh, how or what is the response to many of the parents of the students that were killed in Parkland who expressed outrage that the death penalty was not the outcome of the recent trial? Those parents cry out now that this reflects the lack of justice. Proximity here may well have transformed them into this direction. Very heavy question. That is a really heavy question, Eddie. You know, you know, I I'm very very slow um, to respond about how these people should feel and what they should say, considering what they've been through, um, what they've experienced, and what they are, how they are still grieving. I'll go back to uh, what I said some moments ago. You know, I think that as a society, we have to decide well beforehand who we want to be so that when we have opportunity and we will have opportunity to be distracted from our goal, when we have opportunity to um, get off the path because of some something we still have we still have that thing in place that reminds us as a society of who we've said we want to be. Um, you know, for me as an African American person, standards and policy and law is extremely important because I understand very well historically how um, the hearts of people are very very finicky, right? And how we cannot wait for the hearts of people. To, to line up all at one time before we say what's right and what's wrong. And so we, again, have to go back to that standard that we set. In this case, I would say the policies that we set in this country that help govern, govern our behavior, um, irrespective of what, what we feel about a, a, a thing. I say that um, trying to also say that with as much compassion as I can, because again, I don't know what these people have been through. I've never lost a child. Um, I do believe that we have to decide early, early, early who we want to be so that when the winds of life come, we've already made a decision. I'll underscore what Cece said of I'm not interested in and not qualified to speak to murder victim family members and to tell them how they should think or feel. But I am very interested in holding up other people's voices who say things that are beautiful and intense and weighty and worthy. I think about Reverend Sharon Risher, whose mother was killed in the Charleston shooting in 2015, and she had an op-ed in the New, York, the New York Times last week. And she talks about a multiple year journey toward forgiveness for her. And now she is at a place to say she fiercely and staunchly opposes the death penalty. 
there are voices like hers who talk about both the pain that they've gone through in getting there, but also that freedom that comes in forgiveness. And, and to go back and thread in that earlier question, you know, what is it that's going to get us there? I think it's a lot of things we've mentioned. I think it's prayer. I think that's huge. I think we have to plead. I think that's formative for us and, and pray that God will hear those prayers. But I think it's also us pondering and thinking, how can we move into those spaces? What is our role? How can we stop this that's being done in our name? And I think that that's massive for us to move into those spaces, that kind of activism, both as prayer and both as engaging the movement. Thank you so much. I think we have enough time for this one last question, and then we can go ahead to moving towards our closing thoughts. Um, could we address the argument that the death penalty is just by showing evidence of inequalities in the system? Would it be helpful to prove how arbitrary the death penalty is and that it is applied to the poor and the intellectually disabled racial minorities and that it depends on where you lived instead of the justice for a particular crime? I'll jump in. Um, the answer is yes. <laughs> All of that is absolutely critically important for people to be educated about, um, you know, exactly who ends up on death row and why they end up on death row. And those are so many of the reasons that, that are rightly named there. Um, and I think it's also just obviously understanding that there are many ways to come at this. Um, we've been coming at this from a faith and moral perspective, but you've also heard us talk about policy. You've also heard us talk about innocent people being sentenced to death. You've heard us talk about victims' needs and how murder victims' family members are trapped, you know, for decades. Um, so all, I think all of this is important to educate people about and to really find those common areas where people can say, yeah, I, I get that. I may not I may not understand this part of it, but I can get this part of it, you know, and you start there and you talk and you listen. Um, and then over time, people begin to maybe ask a few more questions and do a little more digging. Um, and so I think all of those things are critically important for us to educate people about, as well as all these other things that we've talked about, where we see the policy of the death penalty utterly failing. Okay, friends, with that being said, I'm going to go ahead to move us to our closing thoughts. As faith, lead, faith leaders, I think one of our biggest jobs to continue the advocacy and continue the work is to keep hope alive, to keep hope alive, to make sure that folks can know that the struggle is going to continue, but the fight is also going to be continuing stronger and with even more of us in the community. So in 30 seconds, if you can give us a message of hope, and I know that's pushing it for us faith leaders here, but in 30 minutes, uh, 30 seconds or so, can you please uh, give a last uh, last thoughts and message of hope uh, for everybody who's watching this? I'll, I'll, 30 seconds. As, as people of the book, and here I'm counting Christians and Jews here as well, we, we know the end of the story. We know there is beauty. We know there is great pain on the way there, and we know that there is a bright and a beautiful end. And some specific places to see that, even amidst the struggle, I mean, I looked at my colleagues here and the things that they're doing. 
I look to what Stacy is doing and how she has been there for a decade and a half doing this work. I look at what CC started within and helped steward in Oklahoma and the amount of people of faith rallying around the bloodbath that is going there. And I see people coming around lamenting, but also reminding themselves that beauty will come and that the dawn will come at the end. Thank you, Sam. You know, I, I think that we there's lots of reasons for hope. You know, I think we've been in dark places before. I think we've dealt with dark things before. And I think that, you know, that here's an opportunity where God really wants to heal us, um, heal us of our wounds as a society. And we have an opportunity to participate with God. I really believe in my heart that people are more powerful than systems. And I believe that when we come together and we believe a thing and we stand on a thing together, there's nothing that we cannot do. And so, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a, because we are alive to talk, because we are alive to do, to think, to be, to pray, there's a lot of reason for us to have hope. Okay, well, I'll just jump in and refer to one of my most inspiring lines from a uh, Jewish tradition, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers, chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. The day is short. The task is great. The workers are sluggish, but God is insistent. It is not for you to complete the task before you, but neither are you to desist from doing your part. Amen. I'm just going to say amen to that. <laughs> no more needs to be said for me. I will as well. Um, I'm, 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 I'm thrilled and happy to learn with everyone today, and I feel... I feel hopeful that we'll we'll stay in the fight um, and we'll and um, that we'll be joyful and liberated together at the other end. Amen. Friends, thank you so much to each and every one of our panelists. Thank you to each and every one of our viewers who enjoyed this programming. We hope to continue to bring such amazing programming to each and every one of you. Make sure you follow Ariel Litzedek. Make sure that you stay connected with each and every one of the panelists here, like Sam, like Reverend Cece, Reverend Stacy, Cantor, Mike, because each and every one of these leaders are that light that's ensuring that darkness does not win. My friends, have an amazing evening or morning whenever you're watching this. Take care.